Good morning to you. Uh, my name is Ryan Mayo. And thanks, Tyler, for doing all of the water songs this morning. That's very helpful to us. <clears throat> As we come to the scriptures, uh, let me pray again a prayer of illumination from one of the prayer books of the Puritans. So pray with me again. Father God, prepare our hearts to learn and to love your word. Your word is our counselor. Let us submit to it. Your word is our physician. Let us be healed under it. Your word is a light to our paths. Let us walk where it leads. May we hear what you say and do what we hear. And may our thoughts and deeds match your steadfast love for us. Amen. Well, you can turn with me to John chapter 7, and we will do the first 16 verses and then skip a bit. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil." You go up to the feast, I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, we are joining this story in chapter 7, in the middle of it. And so what we need to know is that Jesus is beginning to get in trouble with the Pharisees. He is beginning to disclose truth about himself that will result in his death. He's just said in chapter 6 that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And so the people's opinion about him uh, is still very mixed, but getting more intense. And here's just a sampling 
of the opinions about Jesus in chapter 7. The Jews were seeking to kill him in verse 1. Not a great start. Not even his brothers believed in him in verse 5. Some say that he's a good man in verse 12. Some say he is leading the people astray in verse 13. By the time we get to verse 40, he might be a prophet or maybe even the Christ. But again in 47, he has deceived the people. And so if we're reading John for the first time, we might get to this point and feel like we're in the middle uh, of a spy movie. Jesus has a lot of eyes on him, wondering who he really is. And some of those eyes are getting more sinister and bloodthirsty. And the rising tension in chapter 7 revolves completely around this question. Will Jesus go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths? And what will he do when he gets there? And so by the time we arrive at this very dramatic declaration in verse 37, we will see the heart of Jesus respond to the spiritual thirst of the people. We will see a Jesus that confronts. We will see a Jesus that causes a scene, not for his ego and not to win an argument, not to protect himself, but because the people are thirsty. We will see a Jesus that can't stay silent and can't stay hidden because the people need living water. But we have some work to do first. Uh, And the first question is, is Jesus even going to go to this thing? His brothers tell him in no uncertain terms that he needs to go to this thing or people won't believe who he is. In verse three, uh, if you're someone who only displays your works privately and not at the temple, uh, people aren't gonna believe you. Jesus says, don't worry about that, I'll take care of it, uh, and decides to go up halfway through the feast. He is cautious. He goes up without his entourage. He goes up quietly and privately because he knows that the more he says, the more he accelerates his own death. And to appreciate what actually happens in chapter seven, we need to do a little bit of work on the Feast of Booths. What is it? The Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, and it is the final festival in Israel's annual calendar. It is an eight-day celebration of God's provision. It is meant as a remembrance of the years that God dwelled with Israel wandering in the wilderness. And how it worked is this. Before the first day, each family would go collect branches and leaves of certain types and they would build themselves a tiny house and put it in their backyard. And then they would live in it just like the Israelites lived in these temporary dwelling places. And it would remind them in an embodied way that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth following the Lord and receiving his provision. It would also remind them that God did this with him. God also dwelled in a tent. And they didn't invent this tradition. This was mandated by God. Here's how God puts it in Leviticus 23. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So what did it look like? What did it feel like? Was it just fun for the kids and kind of a chore for the adults, like camping? 
No. This was a full-bore party for everyone. This was, uh, before Mardi Gras was, there was the Feast of Booths. Uh, It began after a Sabbath and ended on a Sabbath, but in between was a wild, wild party. And this festival took place right after the harvest came in, after the crops have been gathered, after the grapes have been pressed into wine, and when last year's livestock are fully grown. It is a massive, massive party. Here's how 1 Kings 8 describes some of the numbers. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep were offered that week and shared between the people. And the result from this passage is that all the people went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things that the Lord has done. So a wonderful and tremendous party. What did it mean? Well, the Feast of Booths did not mean just one thing. Some events take on new layers of meaning over time. Christy and I got engaged on June 25th, 2009, and we thought we would remember June 25th, 2009 as our engagement date and that we would look back fondly and remember that. Within minutes of being engaged, the news broke that Michael Jackson had died. (laughs) So now we think about our engagement and we listen to Thriller. For a better, more theological analogy, it is like Passover. Passover meant one thing, and it still means that thing, that God would pass over the sins of Israel uh, and spare their firstborn son if the blood covered the doorpost. But then Jesus comes along and explains his own death in terms of Passover, that his blood would be provided and his body would be provided as a way to save the children of God multiple layers of meanings. And as God continues to act on Israel's behalf, the Feast of Booths took on more layers of meanings. I count six, so buckle up. Uh, Layer one is the most obvious that God provided for Israel in the wilderness. Though the Israelites had no home, God went with them and provided for them. And so living in a tent in your backyard reminded you of that. Layer two was that God also did this. God entered into this nomadic lifestyle for a while, uh, which itself is staggering that the God of the universe confined his presence to a fabric tent, very unmajestic, and chose to wander with his people. The third layer looks forward. The third layer is an anticipation of the Messiah with the branch waving. One of the traditions within the Feast of Booths was that there were daily parades through the streets led by the children and singing about the Messiah who would come. Apparently it was a fun tradition uh, for the children to go rip off parts of the house uh, and then lead the procession waving these branches around. And they would sing a specific set of psalms. They would sing Psalms 113 through 118, uh, which are all forward-facing messianic psalms. So if you can imagine every day, 
thousands of people processing through the streets, singing things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The fourth layer uh, is that their physical well-being, the sending of rain, was linked to their obedience in, in keeping the feast. God had warned them to always keep the feast of booths. In Zechariah 14, and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem for the feast of booths to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So there's a promise and a warning here that those who reject God in this worship may not receive the blessing of rain. So, so far we're looking backwards with the feast. We're also looking forward and receiving a warning in the present. But there's more. And to understand the final layers of meaning in this festival onion, I have to tell you about the climax of the week-long Feast of Booths, which was called the water-pouring ritual. So at the end of each day, a series of priests would carry a golden pitcher from the temple through the streets of Jerusalem, and they were moving south to go to a specific pool. They would be accompanied by choirs and musicians singing those same psalms. And after they drew water from the pool, the priest would lead the procession back to the temple, and the water would be poured into this massive silver basin at the side of the great altar where all the blood and the fat collected from the animals. And this must be done correctly. Historians tell us that about 100 years before Jesus stands up in the temple, uh, a priest had spilled the water before reaching the basin, and 6,000 people died in the riot. Ever since this incident, the people had gotten accustomed to saying, or screaming, uh, raise thy hand when he approached the basin so that this didn't happen again. On the last day of the festival, though, this process lasted longer, with seven trips of water that flooded the altar and flooded the basin, spilling over the side and flowing out from it. And so this is the fifth layer of meaning, that this ritual looked forward to the Messiah, to the Christ, who would come to inaugurate the day of the Lord because he would purify this space. He would purify this temple and this altar once and for all. They knew the words of Isaiah and how the Messiah would bring this purifying water. From Isaiah 12, on the day of the Lord, you will draw water with joy from the wells of salvation. From Isaiah 58, on the day of the Lord, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose rivers do not fail. And from Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The scripture promised them that someone would come to do, in reality, what this ritual only symbolized. Okay, last layer, I promise. 
Uh, New writings and traditions had spread among the Jewish teachers in the centuries before Christ about this water-pouring ritual, and it, it was believed that when the Messiah returned, he would bring forth water from the altar in the same way that water flowed from the rock of Moses. And in this way, the language of Ezekiel 47 would come true, that healing water would flow from the temple when the Messiah came. They're not sure what this would look like. Maybe Jesus would speak to the altar and water would come, or maybe he would strike it like Moses did. Uh, But what they knew was that no water coming out means no Messiah yet. And remember, this does not come from uh, the Bible, but from the tradition of the rabbis. But it's on their minds. And so the questions are mounting up in chapter 7. Now that Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, what will he do? How much of a Messiah is Jesus going to be? Everyone watched him his friends, his disciples, his enemies, his brothers? Is this the year that Jesus is going to make a scene publicly? Any so-called Messiah must eventually interact with the Feast of Booths. How can he possibly fulfill all of these expectations? Well, listen to how one Old Testament scholar describes this fever pitch by the time we get to verse 37. He says this, it was on that day after the priest had returned from the pool of Siloam with this golden pitcher and for the last time poured its contents to the base of the altar. After the Psalms had been sung to the sound of the flute, the people responding and worshiping as the priests three times drew the blasts from their silver trumpets just when the interest of the worshipers who were waving towards the altar quite a forest of leafy branches as the last words of Psalm 118 were chanted, a voice was raised which resounded through the temple, startled the multitude and carried fear and hatred to the hearts of their leaders. It was Jesus who stood and cried, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. And the words that Jesus speaks here are not spontaneous or casual. They are deliberate, they are confrontational, and they are dangerous. And these words come from the heart of the one who came to set his people free from their sins. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what is Jesus saying? These are two profound statements, not just interesting statements, but they represent life and death for our souls. The first thing he says is, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He's saying, I am both the giver and the content of this water. This water that I give is eternal life. It's forgiveness of sin and an entrance into the kingdom of God. And all these things are available to you because of who I am and what I'm doing on your behalf. 
Three chapters earlier in John 4, Jesus offers this water to the Samaritan woman, and he describes it like this. Whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And it's one thing to say this privately to one other person. But here Jesus is bringing his own death closer by interrupting the water-pouring ritual to announce this to the crowd. And Jesus makes it about himself. It's me. I am the water that you're all looking for. Everything you want in this feast is about me. Don't get distracted. The well of salvation and all the living water come from me. It should remind us of the invitation in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. This is God's welcome to us, and Jesus here is his welcoming party. We know that that's why Jesus is here. Back in Luke 4, he said it's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord is welcoming thirsty people through Jesus. And Jesus sees the crowd, and he recognizes that they're singing about him, and he recognizes their thirst, and it is dangerous for him to speak. But he can't stay silent. He must speak. How strong is this welcome? How much does Jesus mean it? He will prove how strong his welcome is 12 chapters later when he is crucified for their sins. And so our Jesus will drink the cup of wrath so that we can drink the living water. And this is the measure of God's invitation to us through Christ. The second statement in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So as if the invitation wasn't enough, he offers more. That after coming to him, these living waters will burst forth from us. So again, he says, don't look to the priests. Don't look to the altar. Don't look to this temple Don't wait for water to magically appear in the temple. The spirit will come and the living water that you so desire will flow out from your own hearts. Now there's a theological truth here and a very, very practical truth here. First, Jesus is relocating the place where salvation is available. See, the temple was assumed to be the physical location for all access to God and to his salvation. But Jesus is anticipating the spirit coming to all Christians in Acts 2. The spirit will live within us and wherever wherever we go, he goes. It won't be reserved only for one kind of people, but it will be available to all. And then practically, there's a warning built into this statement that we know very well, that if we reject 
the living water, we won't stop drinking, we'll just drink from other sources. We can either drink from the cup of living water or the cup of self. And the cup of self has many, many names. Sin, worldly pleasure, fame, power, reputation, and many others that the scripture warns against. And somehow we are always surprised that after drinking from the source of selfishness, that these things spew forth out of us. But the formula here is not complicated at all. Drink living water and it bursts forth from you. Drink something poisonous and you will poison yourself and your neighbors. Drink from the cup of self and that's what will be on display to a watching world. But drink from Jesus and you begin to resemble Jesus. So what does this mean for us? And this is always the question when we see Jesus say profound statements or act in a way that shocks us. He has now said words in public that he can't and won't unsay and said them in the temple and they will result in his death. And we know the rest of the story that he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, that he submitted himself to crucifixion to atone for our sins, even though he held all the power to undo this injustice. And we know how, as Hebrews 12 says, he did this for joy. He did this out of joy. And the same joy that caused him to cry out to the thirsty at the Feast of Booths also took him to the cross to die for them. And so, if you are in Christ, this is your story too. You were thirsty, and that's an understatement. And then Jesus invited you to living water. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You were parched, and you were uninvited to the hospitality of God the Father. And then Jesus said, come. So remember that and rejoice, and don't get tired of that. If you aren't sure, or if this is all new to you, Jesus still stands in the crowd and still cries out these same words, come to me and drink. He says, take my righteousness and believe in the forgiveness that I offer. And the terms and conditions are very simple. What do you need to do to accept this invitation? Just be thirsty. That's it, thirst, and receive it as a gift from God. For those who know Christ, but often drink elsewhere, those of us who struggle and live in the struggle, let's return to Isaiah 55, and after that wonderful invitation in verse 1, there's a diagnosis of our own wayward hearts and a plea to examine them. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
And these words are as timely for us as when they were first written. It is an appeal to us to be reasonable, be sensible about your drinking patterns. Will we reject the source of life and choose to drink elsewhere? All other sources we know will corrupt or disappoint us. We know that we resemble what we worship. When we drink at the Lord's table through Christ, we act like him. We speak like him. We remind others of him. Paul says we smell like him, uh, that we are the fragrance of life. In contrast, when we drink in the gutter, we start to smell like the gutter. So what do we do? We hear and we obey the Savior's call that says, come to me and drink, and then we confess our sins and our selfishness and all the ways that we've gone wrong by drinking elsewhere, and we go on with this living water in our heart, and then we meet next week to gather again and do it all again. Repentance, confession, receive assurance, receive forgiveness, and obey. And we do this again and again and again because he forgives us again and again and again. And we will do this again and again until the great feast in his city when the struggle part is over when the confession part is over. And we're told that this living water flows visibly, tangibly from the throne of Jesus Christ and provides healing for the nations. Let's pray. Father God, giver of all good gifts, the author of all good things, Let us not grow tired of confessing our sins and receiving your forgiveness. Let us not grow tired of this living water. Let us not forget our need for it. Father, many are hurting. Some have received news that they don't want. Some are facing days full of pain and loneliness and fear and insecurity. Give them the hope that does not disappoint. And send your people to provide comfort and help and truth and joy. And we pray these things in the name of the one who gave himself up for us in joy. Amen.